The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church and Pastor Mark Ermler. And 1 Thessalonians in our Bible, chapter number 3, and then we'll be going into chapter number 4, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. Now we've been trying to go verse by verse, and I've got to confess, I wanted to jump ahead. Uh, here in chapter number 4, tremendous passage of Scripture concerning the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I was, even in my thought process, coming out of chapter number 3, the very last verse again emphasizes here the uh, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And I shortchanged in my study some of these verses that are in between those two passages. And in, in a desire to be anxious and get ahead... I really didn't pause long enough to really dive into the verses in between. And so next Sunday, we'll hit verse, uh, really beginning uh, from verse uh, number 13 onward in chapter number 4, which is all on the rapture, the second coming of Christ. And so that'll be next Sunday night, Lord willing. And uh, yet today, I want you to follow along. It's a, it's a little lengthy passage as far as reading it, uh, but I believe we've got to... We've got to grab it all together. All right, we're going to begin with Paul's praying for this young church, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 3, verse number 8. For now we live if we stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God? Remember, he got the good report from Timothy. Timothy came back and he just said, listen, things are going really well uh, at that young church at uh, Thessalonica and uh, God's people are standing fast in the tempter. Satan is not getting his way. And so Paul is overwhelmed with joy as he receives this, this, this good news. Now verse 10 says, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and my perfect, which is lacking in your faith. He wants to go back and visit. He wants to see this young church. He wants to see those that were saved early on in this ministry. Now, God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. That's his desire, his heart desire. Now, sometimes things that we want are not always things that God allows but this is a, a good, right desire, and, I, and God answers, actually, and God allows him to go on back. But uh, we see here that's his prayer burden. Verse 12, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable, in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. You would think for a young church, that seems to be quite a profound word, that he's asking that already in their young life that they would have a life walk, and we're, we're, we're dealing with that here this evening in our study, uh, Bible living. 
that that Bible living would encompass holiness. That that Bible living here would encompass the reality that God is wanting us to be unblemished, which is that word unblameable. That uh, he wants to find his church as a bride without spot or what? Wrinkle. Ephesians chapter number 5. That when Jesus comes, Jesus is looking here for individuals that are a part of a corporate body. Each and every one of us is Christians. And God calls us to this place of holiness. Uh, We're going to hit a topic tonight that I hope you'll have your ears open to. I know you're comfortable. And and I know you might want to just kind of rest your eyes a little bit. Don't do that. All right? Uh, Just do what you have to do to uh, ask God to help you to be alert because I I believe our message here tonight is something that can help each and every one of us. Father, let that be so. Uh, God, give us an attentiveness. Give us ears to hear. Lord, I I know that Satan would love for this message to go right over our heads, and he would love the, the truth of this passage to be missed. And so I pray, God, that as you help me come to a greater understanding of uh, this portion of Scripture, even this week, that you would help us all to have that understanding. Help me now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in your notes, and maybe uh, just having a pencil in your hand and ready to jot something down or doodle or whatever you have to do, uh, let's, uh, let's jump right into the first point on our message tonight on Bible living, all right? We begin with this prayer of Paul, and our first thought is a believer that's asking, a believer that is asking. He's praying for the church. Notice the intensity in verse number 10 of his prayer life, night and they praying exceedingly. His, his awareness of the spiritual battle that was going on, that these are new Christians, and that Satan is desiring, uh, I mean, to, to, to get them off track before they get started in their Christian walk. Brand new believers that are going to be attacked unbelievably by Satan and, and the Apostle Paul says, boy, you've been heavy on my heart. I don't know your condition. Remember from our last time together, going back to uh, chapter number 3, uh, verse number 1, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent to Motheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you, to comfort you concerning your faith. He was so burdened for these young believers that he finally said, Timothy, go find out what's going on. I I just got to know. Just go and help establish them. Uh, Help them to be mature. Help them to grow up spiritually because Satan is the tempter. He's mentioned in verse 5, for this cause when I could no longer... Uh, forbear I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain or empty. He's saying, listen, I I didn't want to go through all that we went through to see that church started, for Satan to get in, and for Satan here to do damage to the people of God. And, And so what is he doing? He says, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying night and day. I'm praying for you. And uh, oh, what a great reminder here for us as believers to be asking God and to be praying for God's church and for the uh, perfecting or the maturing of our faith. That's letter A, a prayer for the perfecting of their faith. 
Verse number 10, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. That word perfect here in the old King James is simply a call to maturity. He's wanting them to grow spiritually. It's not sinless perfection. That's not the concept. The concept is maturing and that he's desiring that they would grow in their faith. So that's what he's asking. He's asking a prayer of maturing. He's asking that the church here would be strong in faith. And and then verse number 11, Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. Uh, Letter B is a prayer for his restoration of fellowship. He said, listen, I just want to be with you. I I just want to spend time with you. I just want to see you and and see your faces again. I want to see how you're doing in the Lord. And that ought to be natural for us to be praying for each other and to crave that fellowship one with another. It's a part of being uh, in in the same body that that we're remembering to pray. Uh, Why? Because there's a lot of burdens that everybody carries. And uh, we don't all carry the same burden at the same time. But I tell you what... There, there ought to be a sense where I can pray for my brother and I can pray for my sister in Christ. Not only pray for them, but the desire of that fellowship, the desire to spend time together with them. You know, uh, in, in our old life, before we knew Christ, we had our, our band. For guys, your band of brothers, you know. And uh, they were in the same uh, mess that you were. They didn't know Christ, and they were living a certain kind of life. And, and we understand that. But now that Christ is our king, and we are in a new family, uh, there's a fellowship that comes now with brothers and sisters in Christ that will be for all eternity. And there ought to be, again, as we are asking for this maturing of their faith, there's also an ask here for a restoration of fellowship. Uh, Listen, don't ever let Satan put wedges in our life one against another. Uh, Just crave that fellowship. Uh, just ask that God here would make it so in, in the body that we would see a strengthening, a maturing of faith, and, and also a restoration of fellowship. And those two things are so critical for the health of the church. That's why they were on Paul's mind. That's why he's asking, uh, this is my big ass. This is, what I, this is what I'm asking for day and night because it's that important. And uh, what a blessing when God answers that prayer. So that's number one, a believer asking Number two, tonight is a believer abounding. Notice verse number 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Honestly, this is a part of the ask. This is a part of his prayer. And, and what he is saying here is he's saying, listen, uh, My prayer is that the Lord make you increase and abound in love. First of all, one for another. Letter A is the abounding of Paul's love for the church. It's the agape love that's mentioned in this text. And he's saying, listen, if there's anything that ought to overflow or or have over and above in the church, it's love that, that ought to be over the top. And that's what that word abounding means, over the top. I mean, uh, Overflowing. If there is one quality that the church desperately needs, and that's why we ought to be praying, is that there would just be the spirit of love that we have one for another, that it can be felt as, uh, as an unbeliever comes into our presence. 
How are they going to know that we're his disciples? By our love, one for another. I mean, there is this awareness that, boy, this is just not a a social gathering. These are people that love each other and that are desiring to invest in each other's life. And they are abounding. They're overflowing in that. The abounding of Paul's love for the church. That's that last phrase in verse 12 where it says, even as we do toward you. The abounding of Paul's love. He's saying, listen, I have a love that overflows for you. I I can't get you off my mind. I'm thinking about you all the time, night and day. I'm asking God. What a a great reminder for us to, to, to really be involved in each other's lives. And let God here uh, just really begin to work as only God can work. The abounding of Paul's love for the church. Letter B is the abounding of the church's love for other Christians. The Bible says the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. So Paul declares his love. It's overflowing. It's over the top. But he says now your love for each other ought to be abounding. Uh, there ought to be an evidence in our life of a, a loving spirit that we have one for another. And yet it goes beyond that because that same verse uses a little phrase, all men. And so for uh, the sake of the alliteration, uh, not only abounding love, Paul's abounding love for the church and the church's love for the Christian, but letter C is the abounding of the church's love for every creature or all men. You know, the world needs to know that the church loves the world because a Christian is a a little Christ and for God so loved the world. I mean, a love for the lost. Mark 16 in the Great Commission talks about taking this good news to every creature. And God's desiring for the love of Christ to be spread abroad. And, And that love is manifest here through the heart of the church, and that's collectively, individually, through the, through the life of the believer. So a believer is asking. A believer is to be abounding in love. Number three, let's go on to chapter four, because now we're going to see a believer abstaining. Abstaining. Now, I'm going to read the last verse of uh, 13 to kind of jump into this because I think it's very important we get a hold of of really the truth of verse number 13. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. I want you to think here of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and how it's connected to your holy walk. Because that's what chapter 4 is going to deal with. We, we kind of dealt with that some this morning. Isn't it interesting how themes come together? <laughs> you don't really plan it on a preaching calendar that, boy, let's talk about walking in love and let's talk about walking in holiness in the morning and in the evening the same truth is covered. Right? I mean, Paul isn't necessarily using the word walk here, but he sure is talking a lot about abounding in love. And, and he's not necessarily saying walk in holiness, but he's talking a lot about holiness and how this holiness really uh, 
is, is uh, incentivized by the reality that Jesus is coming again. Um, would you look at it? To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. I want you to go to 1 John chapter 2, because the connection is made here between how, how can we live a holy life and, and what should we have on our heart and our mind as we seek to walk in holiness. Here John, this is the beloved in verse 28, says, And now, little children, this is through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So he's, he's highlighting the reality that, you know, it's possible to live a Christian life in such a way that if Jesus were to come, we'd stand before him ashamed. Because of what we have been Doing or not doing as children of God, it is possible for us uh, on that day of the rapture to be standing before God absolutely ashamed. I wonder how many Christians here right now in this moment are doing things that if the Lord would come in the middle of the service, they'd be ashamed. That they're participating here in, uh, in, in, in activities here whereby there would be shame because they're going from uh, this world right into the presence of God. Look at the next verse. If you know that he is righteous, you know that every one that doeth righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. This is chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 John. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not beloved. Now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for he, we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. You say, well, how can I be walking in holiness or blameless when Jesus is coming again? Have on your mind the reality that Jesus could come at any time. Here, the admonition is, do you want to be ashamed? And then it goes on to verse, 20, uh, verse 3, And every man that hath his hope in him, what's the hope? The hope that Jesus could come, purifieth himself even as he is pure. Or there is this heart to, yes, I want to stand blameless unblemished uh, as the bride as he comes for me. And so we have to keep the hope of the resurrection in our heart, in our mind, if we're thinking here about the reality that Jesus Christ could come today. I don't do a lot of quotes, but just in all week long, having this passage on my heart and my mind, I wrote this down for myself. Maybe it'll be a help to you. Live your life today as if Jesus would return tonight. How would that change your life? Live your life today as if Jesus Christ would come tonight. What would you do different? What would be the priority of your day if you knew, you know, when I lay my head down in the pillow sometime in the night, I'm going to be in the presence of God. How would my behavior change? 
How'd my speech change? Would I have a desire to be, I mean, absolutely filled with the Spirit of God? Would I want to give the gospel out? I mean, would I want to be kind to my wife, uh, my, my family? Would I want to be diligent at whatever my hand found to do? Would I want to somehow glorify God through the day? If I knew that Jesus Christ were coming tonight, well, we don't know. And yet our life can be absolutely, radically different if we lived with that thought on our heart and our mind. I think that's what we're getting at here in the passage where we can stand blameless at the coming of the Lord. First Thessalonians, let's go back there. Chapter 4, verse number 1. So we went from a believer asking, a believer abounding. Now we're going to a believer abstaining. And again, understand, this is a young Christian group. It's a new church. And he is bold enough to say, listen, there are certain things that, that, that the believer has to say no to. Again, things you put on, things you put off. And he's not bashful. It's the Holy Spirit of God trying to get a hold of these young believers saying, listen, holiness is near the heart of God because God is holy. And God says, be ye holy for I am holy. And although holiness is not a word that we hear all that much, especially in the day and age that we live, it's almost ridiculed and mocked by society. The truth is that's where God wants us. You know, if, if, we can't, if we can't stomach Christians that are living holy lives, if it's kind of, you know, a little bit of a conflict with us when we get around what we think are holier than thou, and, and they're not trying to be holier than thou. They're just trying to live to please the Lord. And that upsets us. Can I just ask you, what's heaven going to be like for you? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why would you joke about worldliness? Why would you flaunt worldliness? Why, why would you uh, um, in, in, in any way be thinking here somehow that, that, that holiness is something that needs to be minimized in the church? Well, that's not what the Apostle Paul wrote to this young church. He said, listen, this is, this is exactly where we ought to be. This is exactly what God calls us to be. He is looking for this church. Ephesians chapter 5, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. We would say, well, yeah, absolutely. One day in heaven, I'll sin no more. God doesn't want us to be sinning more here. He wants a prepared bride or a prepared groom. And chapter number 4 of 1 Thessalonians brings us into this realm of abstaining or saying no. All right, so what do I abstain from? Furthermore, verse 1, then we beseech you, all right, he's, he's begging them, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as ye have received of us, how you ought to walk. 
I like that. Paul is saying, listen, I preached about the walk. I taught you about the walk. The walk for a Christian's important. And that walk, as we seek to walk for the Lord, part of that walk is a holy walk. And, and, he, and he brings it out here. We're to walk and to please God so ye would abound more and more. Let's look at this thought of abstaining or what we would call this walk of holiness as verse 13, the previous chapter, talks about hearts that are unblameable in holiness before God, walking so as to please God. Talks about holiness a little bit later in verse 7. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. So what do we have here? Number one, we have our God, letter A, our God-given regulations. You know, God has a right to say what we ought to be doing and what we ought not to be doing as his children. God has a right through his word to declare to us, this is the way, walk ye in it. His prerogative, his right. We're his creation. By the way, we're his church. And God is the one that is, uh, through his messenger Paul, he's beseeching, he's exhorting that... Uh, as ye have received of us, how you ought to walk and to please God. Uh, listen, Paul wasn't giving a message that he wasn't living himself. Paul said, listen, you know what? We preached about the walk. We preached that the walk is not about you. It's about Christ. Not about pleasing you. That's the way the world walks. The world walks to do whatever, oh man, whatever pushes my button. That's where the world lives. That's where the world, I mean, is enamored with. You know, what can I do? Eat, drink, be merry. That's the the heartbeat of the world. But for the believer, our God-given regulations for life is God says, no, let's, let's put it in perspective. Our life is to please God. That's why God's allowed us to be in this church and to have the testimony we have in our family and wherever God has us, through the week, I'm to please the Lord. Ephesians, we were there this morning, but the Bible simply says, proving what is acceptable to the Lord. I wonder if we would just take our whole life and our activities and all the things we do and just put them in front of the mirror of, does it please God? Instead of, does this please me? Is this what I'm all about? Is this what makes me happy? Or, Proving what is acceptable to the Lord. I mean, the, the activity of my life, I've got to prove before God that it's acceptable to Him. Are the things that we're doing acceptable to God? And if they're not, if they're unacceptable, if they're not bringing honor to God, if they're not glorifying God, then there has to come a point in my life where I abstain. Where I say, you know what? I'm pushing that away. Because it doesn't please God. Now, you know, don't answer audibly or raise your hand, but is there been something this week that we've done that has not pleased the Lord? I mean, has there been really something in our week as we look back that we would say, you know what, I'm ashamed. And to be honest, 
If Jesus would have come when I was doing what I was doing, I would have been ashamed at his coming. How much better to take the admonition here of abstaining, of saying no, putting off, putting on the right things. Abstaining here. These are God-given regulations where God says, listen, I want you to walk this way. Why? Because it pleases me. And then it goes on, letter B, our God-given restrictions. Let me finish the verse. That as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. God says, I need you to do that more, not less. More and more we ought to be thinking about, God, how can I please you today? God, what would be pleasing to you today? Lord, if you return tonight, Oh, that my day would be one that would be pleasing to you. The very next verse now goes into one of these areas, especially in our world today, where we have to recognize that God has given some restrictions. And in verse 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul lays it out for these people in, in this church. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. That word fornication in the Greek is pornea. Get our our word pornography. And, And the word of God simply says here that God's will, what pleases God, is our sanctification. That word sanctification literally means that God set us apart for something holy. God set us apart from the world as the world is all involved in everything that is unholy. God has set us apart for that which is holy. And it is God's will, verse number 3, that we should abstain from fornication. So we see here our God-given restrictions for living, abstaining from fornication. Living a life of sanctification. See, the, the, the reality here is that God's got a wonderful plan for every Christian. And that plan involves, even in a wicked society, to live a life of sanctification. Now, this thought of sanctification, there is a positional sanctification that I have because I am in Christ Jesus. If you want a verse for that, 1 Corinthians, let's go there for just a second, chapter number 1, verse 30. This is all a wonderful list here of that which we have because we are in Christ Jesus. So this is positionally. Because I am am in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, And righteousness, so positionally I'm righteous the moment I got saved. Positionally here, uh, there is a sanctification and a redemption. So positionally here, I understand because I am in Christ. But practically, this needs to be cultivated in my life and in your life. Uh, A life of sanctification, of being set apart from the world for my God. Why? It honors him. It pleases him. 
Whenever, whenever I become like the world in its fleshliness, that's dishonoring and displeasing to the Lord. And yet when I say, God, those are things I want to put off. And by your spirit, I'm resting in your promises on how you are able to uh, help me as I seek to live for your glory. God will give us that help. The restrictions. Notice verse number four. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. That word vessel just talks about this tent of flesh. It's our earthen vessel, right? And God's saying, listen, uh, every Christian ought to know how to possess his vessel. And, and if we don't know how to do that, then we need to get some help so that we can do that. Why? Because that's pleasing to the Lord. And God's desiring for us to uh, recognize here that this life of sanctification, if we're not walking in the Spirit, we're going to be fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And if we're not living a sanctified life, then we're living a life that's not to His pleasure, not to His honor. That every one of you, that's all the women, all the men, every one of us should know how to possess His vessel in sanctification and honor. Again, dishonoring our bodies is dishonoring our God. I know the world cries out, everything goes. And it's amazing how it's crept into the church. This false thinking somehow that I can be free and loose. I, I, I mean, I have been in a church where on one Sunday, uh, uh, this was a, a couple, and then the next Sunday of all things, that couple was split up and they were still in church but with someone else. And I shake my head and say, what in the world? It's dishonoring to God's plan for humanity. And can I tell you, all the world screams out, oh, this is the way you want to do it. God says no. And, and, and that'll bring more hurt, harm, heartache to your life if you would just follow God's marvelous plan. One man for one woman for life. It's his plan. And yet our young people are fed garbage from the world and somehow they're made to think that this is the better way. It's not. God has the better way. And it's the way without the guilt and without the remorse. And, and God's uh, uh, seeking for the believer to abstain. Uh, I'll just take a little rabbit trail if I could. Go to 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to try to be real discreet here. But, you know, the will of God is for us to abstain from, what was the word? The Greek word is pornea, fornication. Okay. That is God's will. God's will is that we would abstain from fornication. And now here in 1 Corinthians 7, nevertheless, verse 2, to avoid fornication. All right, this is interesting. 
So God is saying, all right, there is a means here whereby there is a help to obeying this clear-cut command of God. And I wish I could shake the millennial generation and say, wake up! Wake up! God here has a plan. And it's not just because it's a generational thing that, ah, you know, I'm going to wait two decades and, until I, I get married. I don't see that in Scripture. I really don't. You say, well, it's just something that we collectively think. Well, get into your Bible and let God and His wisdom help you. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. That's good stuff. Amen? Amen. That's, that'll preach. That's good. Paul goes on and he says, Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. We're talking about, again... Sins that are committed even by God's people that they ought not to even be getting close to if there was a healthy relationship in their marriage. If that intimacy was as God ordained it to be, God said, this will help you in that area. By the way, it's my will that you abstain from this. That's my will. And by the way, here's, here's something uh, that, uh, uh, that will help you to avoid uh, dishonoring my will. So God's allowing this marital relationship, husbands and wives, giving of themselves to each other. And again, we go back to the philosophy of this world, and it's perverted. Where, where somehow a, a, a wife is withholding from her husband or a husband is withholding uh, intimacy from his wife. Can I tell you, that comes from the pit of hell. It doesn't come from God. You say, well, that's just the, the societal thinking. You know, we've, we've conditioned these young girls from the time that they're just little ones that, uh, you know, that's your body and nobody has a right here uh, to your body because that's yours. And so go ahead and have an abortion. Nobody's going to tell you not to do that because it's your body. Well, when you're a Christian, the Bible says you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. So first of all, you belong to God, lock, stock, and barrel. So Christian, single, young person, you have no business getting intimate with anyone outside of marriage. That's God's will. Now it goes on and says, in marriage, verse 5, defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time. Now that defrauding is deprive or withhold or rob. You know, God did an amazing thing when he brought you and your spouse together. He made you one flesh. And you're not your own. And God said, listen, for the sake of purity in the marriage, right thoughts in the marriage, for a wife to use intimacy as a weapon or a husband to use intimacy as a weapon is hellish. 
I just praise God for the wonderful wife my God blessed me with. Because she's a Bible reader and she knows God's word. And she practices God's word. Society says, oh, 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 come on. You live in a caveman era. Really? How about I just follow God's wonderful plan where a husband recognizes, let's just read what the verse actually says. Defraud you not one the other, except it be with consent for time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Um, God is very clear. Verse 4, The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Now that's pretty clear. <laughs> that's God just saying, I want to help you morally in your marriage I want there to be an intimacy there. I want there to be something here where you don't feel like i got to be grazing over someone else's field. You know, grass is greener on the other side. That ought not to be for Christians. Why? Because there's a wonderful plan that God gave. And boy, if we're just following God's plan and we're just recognizing God's principles, why to help us, not to hurt us. God designed marriage. And, and if we'll just do it God's way, can I tell you? Uh, it's, it's a taste of heaven. It's a taste of heaven. If we'll just do it God's way. And the scripture goes on, and I know it's a rabbit trail, but notice the emphasis on Satan tempting you not you know, we've got to recognize in this day and age that we're living that Satan is out to destroy men in our Christian homes. And I wish this whole room was filled with our men because they need to hear this. And Satan's desiring to crush our homes, destroy our homes. Um, he's made it so easy. There's so much garbage out there. And, and um, you know, the reality is that Satan is going to use every one of those tools that he can to put a wedge in your family. And don't you buy into Satan's lie and think, I'm just going to play the game that, you know, my friends play with their spouses. Don't do that. God, God very clearly says, listen, if, if there is an agreement, if there is between the two of you, you're saying, listen, we're just going to push all this stuff aside just so that we can fast and pray. That is the only exclusion for a man not just allowing there to be an understanding that this is not my body, it's God's and my wife's. And her wife understands the same. Okay? Let's get back on the real trail, all right? First Thessalonians 4. Go back. A believer's asking, a believer abounding, a believer abstaining. Let her see our God-given responsibility. First Thessalonians chapter number four. The word is responsibility. I'm going to read verse number um, 
Let me start here on uh, verse number, i got to go to verse number 4. For every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence. Now, con- I should know this. Concupiscence. That's a fun word. Even as the Gentiles, which know not God. And, and that simply makes, uh, means a desire for the forbidden. Can I throw something else out at you? We live in a world today where fantasy is elevated, whether it's through computer gaming or whatever else, role-playing. And, and, you know, some folks look at that as, well, that's just harmless, harmless junk. You know, it really isn't because God is giving here a warning about, uh, I mean developing an appetite for the desire for the forbidden. There are things that are out of bounds in the life of, of a Christian man and Christian woman. And, and God just wants to protect the sanctity of that marriage. But when we've got, again, a generation that is so into Role-playing. I always, always was very nervous, and my, my kids could tell you, uh, uh, any game that involves somebody else on the computer somewhere else, I, I got real nervous about. Just ask Jonathan or any one of the kids. I got real nervous about anything where there'd be a role-playing involved, where there'd be kind of this fantasy thing involved. You know, we don't need to live there as Christians. We live in a real world. We have a real God. Uh, we have a real life. And yet there's a whole generation that we're losing. We're losing young men. We're losing young women. And they're, they're, they're in this fantasy world. And they live there. And, and let me tell you something. God can deliver you from that. God can help you break free from that. Because uh, this lust is developed as we give ourselves to this fantasy world. And it's the word lust there. It's the wrong kind of desires. You know, there's a good kind of desire in a marriage bed, but then there's the wrong kind outside of marriage. And God is here simply saying, listen, you don't need to be living here in that realm of the forbidden. You, you don't need to be allowing your mind to go there. And, and if that's your habit and, and you're playing these fantasy kind of games on the Internet or you know, and something, you just say, God, just deliver me from that. It's over it's done with. I don't want to open up a door where Satan now has got a toehold because I'm living in a world that's not real. It's going to hurt you. It'll hurt your future marriage. And God here is saying, listen, I just, I just, I just want you to see that there is a need for abstaining in the life of a Christian. There's regulations that God gives for life. There's restrictions where God says no. And he has a right to. And then with those restrictions come some responsibilities as well. Let me keep reading. Verse number 6. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother 
in any matter. Let's take advantage of his brother in any matter because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also have forewarned you and testified. What an amazing all the things that, that Paul is sharing with new Christians. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Properly purified. By the way, that word holiness is the very same word back later in verse 3 of sanctification. Uh, that particular Greek word's found five times for each of those uh, English translations. So the word holiness there is sanctification in verse number 3. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. I mean, that Christian that goes around saying, oh, God and your restrictions, and God and your regulations, and God and all of your rules. God's trying to help you, not hurt you. God literally wants to give you the best life available now. You already know you've got that coming forever. But he's really desiring here a little slice of heaven on earth. And so these warnings come at us, and we can either yield to God's will, please him, or we can yield to our old flesh. And Satan, again, he'll jump right in and cause all kinds of pain. So we have here the responsibility. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. I'm responsible here uh, to live a sanctified life, one that's set apart. I'm responsible in this area of practical holiness. I need to abstain from certain things. I need to say yes to some things, no to other things. Put on, put off. Boy, we have that over and over again in the epistles. We saw it this morning in Ephesians. You'll see it in Colossians. You'll see put on, put off, put on, put off. These things, you don't need them. These things, you do. Okay? Uh, Again, it's not God's list of rules and regulations. It's God, uh, and and, and Paul is the one who's testifying, verse number 6. Also, he's forewarned you and testified. That's with a passion. It's the same word that is used with Peter as he's preaching at Pentecost. He's saying, listen, I really was trying to drive the point home. Your holiness, sanctification, it's important. And, and oh, that we would come to a place where we recognize how important it is for us to abstain. It's our responsibility. Um, you ladies, pray for the men in our church. You know, it's a whole different ballgame. And, and I say this, and, and, and ladies... There's no way you can't even understand what I'm about to say because you're not a man. But God has made it so that a man is going to have trouble through his eye gate. It's just how he's made. A a woman doesn't have that issue. She she needs more of an intimacy, actually a, a, a touching. That's why I warn young couples, listen, be careful about, again, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. It's not good for a man to touch a woman. Why? Well, because that's how that woman is, is going to um, 
be brought to a place where she doesn't need to be when she's not married. It's practical. It's Bible. God's saying, I'm trying to help you. But we go, no, but the world doesn't do it like that. Yeah, I know. That's why the world's the mess that it is. And God's just crying out to young people that are believers in churches and others that just, I just want to help you. And so, man, if that's going to be our real issue, then what are you doing to protect yourself? I mean, if that's really where Satan's going to get his inroad through our eye gate, then we have got to take some proactive measures to help us. Now, there are some things that, I mean, that can't be helped. You know, I'm... I'm with a bunch of college young people going down a road in a van uh, ready to preach for a church, and they're going to sing in a quartet. And here's this billboard in Michigan, I mean, with the worst of the worst all over it. And I'm going, guys, look over here! You know why? Because what was over there, I uh, wanted to feast their eyes over here. Why? Because I know that's a real problem. All right, what? God made us that way. So we've got to do the protecting, don't we? We've got to say, now, God, how can in our practical way have victory so that I can be unblameable, so that I can walk a holy life? So I've got to look at my life and just say, okay, here's, here's some parameters I'm setting up. Here's some boundaries I'm setting up. Why? Just to protect. Because I cherish the family unit and what God wants to do through a Christian uh, marriage, okay? Asking, abounding, abstaining. I'm going to just give you the last points. I can't really preach them, but let me close by just giving you the, the input. Number four is a believer admonishing. And this is really a repetition of this theme of love. And uh, we see it in verse number nine, but as touching brotherly love You need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Remember uh, in verse 12 of chapter 3, you're to abound in love. All right, that's letter A, a call to abound in love. But now in verse 9 and 10, what what does God desire for us to do? Verse 10, and indeed ye do it toward all the brethren, which are in all Macedonia, but we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. More and more what? More and more of this brotherly love. Verse number 9. God taught us to love one another. God showed his love to us. And here we see this admonition for the church. It's, it's yes, pounded home in chapter 3, but it's, it's repeated here in chapter 4. And that is just that Boy, love is the theme. A call to abound in love, a call to increase in love. And then number five, lastly tonight, a believer accomplishing. And, and to be honest, I, I think there's enough here to where I'm, I'm going to pause and then we'll tag this on top of our look at the second coming of Christ. But it actually deals with another practical topic and that's a, a Bible work ethic. And uh, if you just want to uh, take a look ahead of time, read these last couple of verses. It, it really is, is to help the church realize that as God develops in our heart and our life a godly work ethic, that God's going to use that in a, a multiple different ways to help us uh, help others. 
Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.